Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Build Amazing Things Securely. I'm Laura Bell Main, and we are joined today by a really interesting guest. Um, I hope you're going to make her feel at home. Lots of comments and questions in the posts, please. Um, we're joined today by Shanna Daly. Um, now, Shanna is an old friend. She's an exceptional person. She's listed on LinkedIn as a master of shenanigans. This this is going to be a lot of fun, team. Um, but I'll let Shanna introduce herself. So first of all, hello. It's great to see you. And thank you for coming on. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It's good to see you too. Um, yeah, I have had in the past people asking me if Niggins was my married name. It is not. <laughs> it, it we don't judge you can call yourself whatever you like and i think master of shenanigans is a wonderful title to to adopt um but let's introduce you for the crowd so shanna who are you the human um well i am a lot of people i think but uh for the purpose of uh this podcast i am a bit of a nerd i've been a nerd for a very long time as long as i can remember um, I've always liked breaking computers and putting them back together and um, you know, pulling things apart. So that's led me into a career of doing cybersecurity, which uh, if you had asked me 20 years ago, what, do you, what will you be doing in 20 years? I didn't think cybersecurity was going to be it, um, but I love the area. It's uh, pretty amazing and interesting. And I got, I think, very lucky that I was able to specialize in the digital forensics and incident response area of cybersecurity, which um, can be like putting puzzles together when things go wrong or someone gets hacked, what happened, what was taken, you know, where did they go, um, you know, reverse engineering malware and applications and things like that um, is really, really interesting and something to learn every day. So um, I feel very privileged to be able to work in a space where I'm challenged constantly which I don't think yeah. you get in too many too many careers these days. I, I don't think so. I think, I think it sounds pretty epic to me. Um, mm -hmm. Now, there's a few things she missed off her lovely description, but I think it's pretty cool, so I'm just going to brag for her for a second. Um, she's a speaker coach at Black Hat. How cool is that? Not only is she involved with that conference, which is epic for security, but she's one of the people who helps me people shine. Fabulous. Um, so, you know, you can't, you know, go and have a look at um, Shanna's um LinkedIn, if you do want to know more information, but um, an incredible privilege to have you on today. Now, our audience may not have any background in forensics. In fact, I assume they don't. Now, they might be like me. You know, you say the word forensic, Shanna, and what I'm thinking of is we've all gone Mulder and Scully. It's old X-Files days. We're solving crimes. You know, the, have, is there a board somewhere with pieces of string uh, and photos and evidence. Um, and so what I'm hoping we can do today is kind of dig into, so a bad thing has happened. What does the investigation and forensics process look like um, from your perspective? And then perhaps by the end of this, we might have some tips to share with our audience as to things they could do as engineers that means if bad things happen, the chance of being able to figure out what happened is increased. So we're going to go on a bit of an adventure today. Yeah, perfect. Um, All right. So talk us through how, how, you know, is there a bat signal? How, how does someone like you end up involved? Um, yeah, there is a bit of a bat signal, but um, I don't think you're too far off with the X-Files. I tend to um, 
like at NCIS and do you remember Abby from NCIS? Oh, with the, with the like the six keyboards uh -huh. and the magic typing. Yeah. 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 And two people typing on the same keyboard. Yeah, that's that's like, can be a little bit what happens in an incident response engagement sometimes when everyone gets a little bit frazzled, but uh, there is pretty much a backbone. Um, over the years I've been called to various places around the world, which is also very cool to go and work and do incident response for you know, really big organizations and some really small ones as well. Um, but they do generally reach out uh, at a time of complete crisis. So they might have found out that they have been hacked. Um, maybe someone like the ACSC or, um, you know, FBI often does this as well, or the Secret Service in the US will reach out and tell an organization that they're either have been hacked or they're a target of an ongoing attack that's happening right now. So they're often in quite a panic when they call up looking for some help. So a lot of our job to um, fortunately or unfortunately is managing the people side of incident response too. So making sure that everybody stays calm and doesn't react and do things that uh, they might regret down, down the track, you know, changing things. Um, we often see uh, administrators jumping on and then going through systems and sort of trawling through trying to take a look at what's happened, which then just muddies the waters a lot. Um, we've actually had a game in the past that was attacker or admin. Um, can you can you define um, who does oh, what? No. So yeah, so we'll typically, um, if there's been a, a hack, uh, often we'll have a little bit of a, a knowledge of what system that's been on. So for example, if you look at even in a, traditional crime sense if the police are going to a person's house they are going to target their main computer and that's sort of what we end up doing in in digital forensics as well so we'll take a look at you know the main system that is in question and what we're going to do is gather as much evidence from that as possible and our ideal evidence is actually a bit for bit copy so an exact forensic copy of the entire hard drive um, where this where it's capable of doing that. Some, in some instances, we cannot. Um, but we want to get as much information from that computer as possible. So all of the operating system, all of the applications, um, all of the information, including the um, unused space as well, um, all of the petitions. So we want to gather as much of, of that as possible. And that's when we start looking at what actually happened. So pulling apart, you know, we look at log files, we look at user activities. So, um, you know, what, uh, what did they go and look at in say Windows Explorer, for example, did they open an internet browser? Which browser was that? Did they go to any sites? Did they download any files? Have they accessed any network shares um, from this system? Have they copied any files across network shares? Um, you know, they will often run things like PowerShell. So looking at PowerShell logs is incredibly useful. Um, they will try and use remote desktop protocols. So a lot of the terminal services logs can be quite useful as well. So what we'll want to try and do is figure out what's happened on this computer and have they gone anywhere else? Generally, we'll see that they have gone somewhere else. Um, and then we'll follow that lead to that next computer. So yeah, we do actually have those boards with, um, you know, pictures and pieces of string. They tend to be a little bit more online these days. Um, there's some tools that help with that. So putting putting those pieces together of, yep, okay, so they this is the first computer we know that they've been on. Um, it may not be the first computer that they've actually hacked. They may have come in earlier, but what we want to do is find out that timeline. So we do sort of put those pieces of string together, follow their um, activities, you know, look for any, they'll often put malware 
um, you know, to provide a backdoor. So if they've been able to get uh, access via some user credentials, maybe they went and fished one of the employees and was able to get their username and password. If they can log in with that username and password, they'll probably want to get put in a, a backdoor that will allow them to come back without needing to have valid credentials because some organizations may make you change credentials every 30 days. So they don't want to have to be phishing people every 30 days. So they'll tend to put some malware on a system and give themselves another way back in. And often we'll see, especially in cases that involve sort of your larger breaches like nation state, they will put in several different backdoors. They will gather as much information as they can about the network. Um, they will look to gather as many credentials as possible using some credential harvesting tools. Um, tools, there's a, a tool called Mimikatz that is often used, um, which is particularly nasty if they've used that on a, an Active Directory server. Um, but they will try and collect all of that information and use that to come back um, and complete their mission, which depending on the kind of attacker, it might be to collect um, personal information. So it could be names, addresses, credit card details, um, things that they could use to um, you know, steal identities. Um, they might use those credentials to sell on the dark web or the black market. Um, and there are uh, people out there who buy credentials and use those to do further attacks on organizations as well. Um, it might be financial gain. It might be for intellectual property. So it's, um, it can be really different depending on the motivation of the attacker as to what we would do next after sort of finding out where they've been and how they've they've moved around the network. So, you know, if we've got a ransomware case, for example, we don't want all of the computers to get encrypted and go offline. So we're probably likely to sort of pull the plug as quickly as possible. Mm. Um, but with, you know, nation state, we might let them, you know, wander around a little bit more and understand a little bit more about what they're doing, where they've been and what they're in there for. So this is really yeah. fascinating. I and mean, there's a lot to unpick here. So I'm going to kind of pull some threads apart here. Yeah. Um, so first things first, I love the the idea that you have a game where it's, is it admin or is it attacker? Um, you know, our first instinct as an engineer is to fix a problem. There is a problem. Bad thing happened. Oh, my goodness, fix it. And uh, we've all been there and done it. You know, we rushed a, a push to production um, to try and fix a, an urgent issue and inadvertently made things worse. Um, so I think that's a great reminder that when you get to a certain level of things have gone wrong, um, don't help. Stop trying to help. That's not helping. Um, I mean, I it, what you were describing with in terms of the the um, bit by bit copy. That's a lot of data that you're parsing through um, when you're doing forensics. It's not just you know uh, one or two log files. You know, how much data do you would you say that you get to kind of play around with and explore on a on a typical job? Um, depending on the sort of scope, but you know, if you're looking at disk sizes these days of terabytes of data, um, it can be quite a lot. Um, I'll kind of touch on that just as a tip now, just while I remember before my mm. tangent brain goes off. Um, if you are, you know, there is nothing wrong in having a look at what the problem is, but if you can do a backup first, you know, if you're if you're running these, a lot of organisations these days are running in the cloud. They're running on hypervisor. Do a snapshot, you know, mm -hmm. preserve the events before you go and um, play around in there. Uh, that will help people or, you know, if you've got people coming in to do incident response, that will help immensely. And then we can see, you know, if you do find things, that will assist 
the investigation as well, but we can also go back and we don't have a system that's had, you know, you know, running the same commands as the attacker may have run, which makes it really difficult to figure out who did what. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's very sensible and very pragmatic advice. You know, take a snapshot, take a coffee yourself before you go do anything. Um, so that's a lot of data. You mentioned a whole bunch of different logs there as well. And I think we forget as engineers, you know, this is the code we build, but, you know, every tool on that system underneath the software we've built and have deployed has its own functions and has its own logs. Um, how long typically, what I want to get into, I'm going to phrase this more succinctly. Hang on. Right. So you've been called in. The bat signal has happened. We've gone and taken our copy of the disk. We are, you know, going through the logs. We're trying to do our, you know, our NCIS style investigation into what has happened. How long would you say, and I'm asking you for averages, which are terrible, but anywho, um, how long is it typically from you've been called in if you work backwards to when the attack took place or somebody noticed a bad thing had happened? Is it, um, do they know really quickly or does it take a while? Um, if ransomware, they tend to find out fairly quickly. <laughs> <laughs> well, do not just go ransomware. There's a pretty obvious yeah. one. Yep. Yeah. So um, it, interestingly, when you look at some of the, you know, so the Verizon data breach reports, so there are a couple of um, vendors that put out some really good reporting each year. So Verizon is one of those, the data breach um, investigations report, and also Mandiant um, put out a report each year. Um, detailing some of the breaches that they have been involved in or organizations that they work with. And it will talk about the dwell time of an attacker. And the dwell time is the time that the attacker has been in a network and has not been noticed or found yet. So I've worked on engagements where the dwell time was over three years um, wow. recently. Um, and then obviously our ransomware um cases you know bring that dwell time down and the dwell time average down to you know mere hours sometimes mm. um you know but often ransomware operators these days they're in and deploying ransomware within about six hours so they'll like a ransomware operator will, will come onto a network they will gather as much info try and download as much privacy info or data from that organization as possible before they deploy that ransomware um, many years ago, maybe about four years ago, they used to spend a couple of weeks. Now it's mere hours. You know, we're getting better at detecting them. So they're actually, you know, sort of dropping and running a little bit faster. But yeah, there are organizations, and I think some of the ones within Mandiant um, and the reporting, you know, up to nine years. Uh, and, and sometimes we don't even know when it first happened. Um, yeah, I was going to ask about that because, you know, um, I mean, long gone, thankfully, are the days where I just set my logs to default and they just roll over at 14 meg or whatever they were in the, the horrible old days. Um, but I don't know if many of my systems would have the logs really to go back and investigate for that period of time. What do you do when you don't have the logs? Um, so that's when we start looking at the um, different artifacts that we can find on the system. So it will depend on what operating system we're using. Um, I know, I'm not sure, you know, the listeners out there, a lot of uh, developers these days are using Mac. Um, you know, but we've got Windows, we've got Linux. So we'll start to look at some of those artifacts which are part of the operating system that may not be so obvious. Um, within Windows, there are artifacts that we can parse, they're proprietary Microsoft format, and they will give us some information that is not logged, but is quite vital to an investigation and might help us discover around about how long that system has been 
um, breached for and, and what they were doing. So it can be really difficult to tell sometimes what the initial access point was. Um, if someone has been fished five years ago, um, it could be impossible to figure that out. So often when we're looking at, you know, if we've got a breach of three years, we can say, you know, we've got activity from this date to this end date. You know, that's all we can kind of go for. It might have been earlier. Um, but yeah, we've just got to work with what's there. And often, even these days, um, you know, organizations don't change that default setting in Windows. So um, particularly on, you know, Active Directory, oh, those no. logs are rolling in about five minutes. Oh, gosh. Um, I, I'm, I'm going to come back to this when we give some tips as to how you can make things a bit better you know in the worst case scenario if there is an incident you know what are the things we could have done in advance to make sure that the investigation is a bit more successful and I think I'm still going to have nightmares from time to time about Active Directory logs being completely useless unless you actually configure them properly um, so what's the net result of this so you've been called in you've done your investigation say you know a company has been compromised um, let's not look at ransomware because the outcome of that is slightly different Imagine there's been, you know, some other longer breach. What is the company trying to achieve with getting someone like you to look at their system? Uh, is it, you know, hunt down the people and send them to prison or is it something else? Um, sometimes that might be the motivation initially. Uh, but a lot of the time, so for example, if they fear that um, there has been maybe a, an organization is part of a merger and acquisition um, or maybe they're doing an RFP process um, and they're submitting to, you know, they might be an engineering firm, for example, and they're submitting, an, um, you know, a response to an RFP, you know, maybe build a bridge or a road or something like that. Um, if they've been breached, what if that, or what if those attackers have actually accessed that data? Um, mm. And that could, you know, put them at risk because if a competitor knows how they're positioning themselves, what they're positioning themselves with and the pricing, that could be detrimental for their submission. Um, so often when we're called in, it's because that the organization needs to understand what has been taken, what has been accessed, and what could the potential fallout be from that. So if we look at some of the breaches we've had in Australia um, over the last 12 months, um, we're looking at Optus, uh, Medibank, that information that was actually taken, you know, kind of had some really big impact on individuals in Australia. So we stopped looking at, you know, an impact on the organization itself. It was having an impact on individuals. So, you know, those organizations would bring in somebody who's expert in this area to make sure that there is there anything else that these people have accessed um, that they have not published right now. And if there is, get on the forefront. You know, mm. if there is additional things that have been accessed that might cause additional harm to people, then they can at least then go out to those, you know, customers and say, look, this is also gone. You need to go and change, you know, you know, your passport needs to be renewed or yeah. something like that. Um, but even in the case of uh, intellectual property, you know, understanding what is out there and how to respond, um, that might be something that an organisation that's listed on a stock exchange might need to do, for example, you know, report back to the board and say, look, you know, unfortunately, we've had a breach. They've been able to access our blueprints for our brand new widget that we've just created. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we, we're going to expect to see 
this widget out in the market fairly soon now. We're, we're going to need to, you know, push forward with our, um, you know, go to market, for example. You know, so yeah. it could influence a lot of business decisions uh, based on what has happened during that attack. And, you know, some organisations will give it a try to do it themselves, but it does, you know, having a dedicated team, you know, will get you answers a lot faster. We're often brought in to an organisation after they've tried to do it themselves and realise that they just don't have the breadth of experience or knowledge to actually find all of the pieces. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it is sort of like bringing in your forensics experts to take a look at a crime scene. Um, sure, you could probably take a look as well and, and figure out that, you know, there's been a murder here, but, you know, do you know the angle that the um, murderer was standing at and how high they, the gun was when they pulled the trigger and what kind of gun it was based on the, the gunpowder that was, you know, residue left behind, those kind of things. So that's what we're there for, is to find all of those details. And, you know, I think there's, there's some really key lessons before we get into our tips to leave folk with um, uh, that I just kind of want to echo up a little bit here. There's some skills in a software team that we definitely want all of our engineers to have. So, you know, how to prevent common vulnerabilities, how to, you know, protect against these these kinds of attacks. But then there's some skills that it's nice to have a knowledge of, you know, what what is this area? Um, who, what type of people have these skills? What can they do? But they're not necessarily skills that you need to build inside your team. Um, and that they're not necessarily skills that you can build quickly either. You know, um, you've got a, a, an amazing varied career behind you to get to where you are now, Shanna. And, you know, uh, you really, in a, that time of crisis, you're going to want somebody who has, you know, been living and breathing this this kind of specialized technology space. So if we were going to kind of use our last five minutes productively, what are the types of things engineering teams, wherever they are in the world, could do that would improve the chances of success if a bad thing happens? Um, well, the first thing I'm going to suggest is make friends with your security team. If you have a security team within an organization, um, one of my bugbears is um, a little bit what you kind of mentioned, Laura, that, you know, people often expect their IT team to be security people. It's like expecting your plumber to be able to fix your electrician, you know, your electricity, right? They're, they're different. They're very, very different, different specializations and different skill sets. So, you know, as, as developers, um, you know, don't expect that you need to be able to fix everything or know what you need to fix. Um, there are going to be people out there that can help you and give you some ideas on what they are. So don't be afraid to go and, you know, during the, the development process, which I understand can often be quite hectic, um, but engage with the security team if you have them in your organisation and, and get some advice and help early on. You know, talk to them, ask them, hey, is this something we need to be concerned about? Um, can you check this? You know, maybe they might be able to take a look at the code. Um, we often see that, you know, the end of the development process is, what, is when security is brought in and security comes in and says, nope, nope, can't deliver that. Um, which then causes a lot of friction, I guess, um, between teams. But, yeah, I think same thing, you know, your security team are not developers, so they don't understand necessarily the pressures that you're going through and, and you know, you've got to understand that there's the pressures that the security team will go through as well. But you're definitely getting involved with them uh, as soon as possible. Um, you know, logging is really invaluable 
um, having information within logs that will be useful. So even if there are multiple log levels, but you know, not having logs that say, you know, it broke. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. Right? Oh, we'd so, never, we'd never do that, right? <laughs> sure, we would use decent log messages and definitely don't yeah. have credit card numbers in them. So yeah, so you know, just having enough information within logs that could give you an idea of of what has happened there. So if you know, there's an authentication module, for example, that you you're understanding, you know, where that, um, you know, where did the authentication come from? You know, as much as possible. Who was the who was the person authenticating, or who was the the identity authenticating? How did they authenticate? You know, was it via SSH? Was it over web protocol? Um, was it certificate based? Things like that. So defining a little bit of detail around, um, you know, that login can help. Then say, well, if we're going back and looking at a breach. Well, we know that Shanna usually logs in from Sydney because that's where she lived. But today we see a login from Shanna that's coming from, you know, Turkey. All mm. right, let's reach out to Shanna. And is she traveling in Turkey today? Uh, probably not because an hour ago she logged on from Sydney. So um, having details like that um, can be really invaluable. So, I mean, obviously that's a specific use case, but, um, no, you know, I when think you... that's a really great example. Yeah. Um, so any others? Um... Well, I'm not a developer, <laughs> All good. Um, but uh, yeah, I think it's just, you know, as much as I say that, you know, I, I do, I do try and understand if I'm working with development teams, you know, try and understand a little bit about um, what those vulnerabilities might likely be. Um, mm. you know, probably everybody talks about the OWASP top 10, no doubt. Mm -hmm. um, on here, so if you're building web applications, uh, I, I think I'm going to... I'm going to pull up one you mentioned a couple of times that okay. we just say it so often that we forget that we're saying it. You mentioned credentials that may have been used that were stolen five years ago. Yes. And I think, you know, perhaps there's something we can reinforce there about remembering that credentials shouldn't last forever. If it's celebrated yes. its fifth birthday and it's ready to go to school, it's probably ready to be changed as well. Yeah. It's probably ready to be changed a long time before then. That's um, a really good point. Um <laughs> Is, there's that fine line between, and I think Microsoft changed their policy from every 30 days to once a year, which if you build a stronger password, once a year is better. Um, but once a year, if you also have multi-factor authentication enabled. So, you yeah. know, not, not two passwords, um, but, you know, an extra piece, which, you know, like an authenticator app might provide that uh, extra piece of uh, authentication to say, yes, this is really the person that... Um, is trying to log in. So uh, once a year is a pretty good um, password round if you've got multi-factor authentication. Also not reusing passwords, and that's where people get stung, is they might use that same password they've used to log into Gmail as they mm. used to log into their corporate account. So that's the first thing an attacker is going to try. If yeah. they've got your Gmail password, they will also try and log into your 0365. Um, yeah. Definitely. So yeah, password reuse and, you know, password expiries is, you know, you can use uh, websites like Have I Been Pwned? Um, if mm -hmm. you Google that and you can actually take a look and see if your email address has been a part of any breaches over the years. Um, and sometimes you can even, you know, find the password in plain text on the internet as well. So if you have had any of those, um, your emails in breaches over the years, do make sure that you change your password. Yeah, and I think there's a, there's lots of nice things for our audience to have a play with now and have a think about, you know, 
First things first, make friends with your security team. They probably like cake. You could start there. Um, secondly, you know, we're talking about us um, making good choices with our authentication and passwords. Now, um, Shannon mentioned a couple of tools like Mimikatz and things. These are open source tools. I'm not saying go and use them in your production environments. Please don't do that. But going and looking at the types of tooling that are used in forensics and in offensive security can help you understand a bit more where the risks are. Um, and maybe, you know, your last piece of homework team, let's have a look at those logs. Is it just a log for the sake of the log? And we're just saying, hey, oh my God, it's all gone wrong. Or can we tell the story of our application just by looking at those logs? And if we can't tell the story of what's happened in enough detail, then somebody like Shanna, if everything goes wrong, is going to have a difficult time trying to figure out really what the impact is. So we can be prepared for incidents and understand forensics a bit better by thinking about those logs. So I think that's a really valuable set of three things for our team to go and think about this week. So thank you so much for your time, Shanna. It's been lovely to chat. Is there a best way for us to follow your shenanigans further online? Yeah, so I'm on LinkedIn, um, Shanna Daly. You can follow me there or Twitter is probably where I'm the most active and uh, myself. Um, and it is fancy four and six. So F-A-N-C-Y underscore four and six. Fancy forensics. Oh, that's amazing. I hadn't spotted that. And I've been literally <laughs> reading your tweets for years. Fabulous. All right. Well, um, go get your fancy forensics fix from Shanna after this, and we will catch you all in the future. Remember to like, subscribe and comment. Um, and if you have a guest that you would like to recommend, please do send us an introduction because we would love to introduce and interview any technologist that is doing amazing things in the world. Um, so thank you. And we'll see you again soon.